Good morning. It's uh, April 9th, 2020, about uh, mid-morning here. Looking for a little snow tonight, I guess, apparently. Uh, so we're going to change things up a little bit. Had planned on having Derek Hurst on. We promised him for two weeks now, and, and uh, different things uh, have come up that, that have seemed a little bit more urgent. And uh, me being being home now, I've, I've set up the podcast station. I've moved my whole studio here to, to my house, which isn't much really. Uh, it's just a microphone and a headset. But I'm going to tell a story about about a little boy that was born in 1906 in Alton, Maine. In 1906, Alton, Maine had uh, zero cars, zero electricity, zero telephones, radios, uh, none of that stuff. And you could reason that society at that time in Alton, Maine had more in common with, uh, with George Washington than it does with us now. Nonetheless, in 1906, Herbert Sargent was born. That would be my grandfather I'm talking about. And uh, he, he had a, a wonderful life there in that small community. One of the things, he, he related many stories to me over the years, and, and I'm going to try to spend some time here hitting the high points of Herb's life. And uh, I think I've got you know, been able to extract a few lessons from him that I put to work for myself. And also at the end, uh, we're going to have some shout outs as we as we try to do every week. So hopefully it'll be worth the listen and, and uh, you'll hang out for the shout outs, if nothing else. One of the stories Herb related to me one time was uh, he stepped out of the out of the schoolhouse, which is on Route 16 in Alton. And it's on top of an esker there that's a long gravel ridge that runs miles and miles and miles. And he stood on the top step of the schoolhouse with his backpack. It wasn't his backpack at then. They just had straps with their books slung over his shoulder. And he was about eight years old, he thought. And he could see past the Dumkeg Mountain. And I don't know exactly how far that is. I'd say 20 to 30 miles away. And... He looked at that mountain and wondered to himself, boy, I wonder if I'll ever be able to go that far in my life and see what is on top of that mountain. And that just gives you an idea how immobilized the whole world was back then. He got his first commercial job. His, his first commercial business was uh, hauling sawdust to, to the neighbors so they could insulate their ice boxes with it. And his, his dad and his uncle had a big uh, sawmill in town and out in there. And he would sell sawdust to the neighbors, 25 cents for a one-horse load and 50 cents for a two-horse load. And that just, I think, gives a glimpse into how industrious this guy was. By the time he was 15, he got work with a blacksmith building wagon wheels so this is 1921. I recall the Wright, the Wright brothers had flown in 1903 for the first time. Uh, automobiles hadn't, hadn't hit out yet. By the time he was 15, he was still building wagon wheels. Although I'm sure there were some vehicles around. He was being paid nine cents a day to build wagon wheels. 
When he was 17, his dad took a job as a strike breaker for the railroad up in Milo, or actually in Derby, which is a small town inside or beside Milo. It's called the railroad town. He, uh, he almost got in a fistfight at, at school one time because most of the kids' dads worked for the union. Uh, but apparently one person stepped in and said, you know, leave him alone. It's not his doing. It's his dad's. I can't picture my grandfather in a fistfight, frankly. Uh, by the time he was 18, he was working up in Wilson Pond near Greenville in a woods camp. He, he always seemed to be able to to find an opportunity. And on the 4th of July, he, uh, the, the people at the camp decided to go into Greenville to whoop it up a little bit. And uh, as an 18-year-old, he decided to stay back. And as it happened, a uh, game warden came by. And uh, Herb offered him some food. And uh, the game warden sat down and had food with him. And he asked him what he'd think about being a registered guide. And Herb's, uh, Herb's dad was a re- registered guide up at Joe Mary Lake in northern Maine. And uh, Herb was thrilled with that idea, so he became a registered guide. Uh, I have a picture uh, during that period of him in a boat, a, a wooden boat, a small one with, I'm going to say, a three-horse motor on it. And he's got his foot stuck up on the, uh, on the bench seat in front of him. And you can see how uh, his shoes are worn through like three layers of the soles. It kind of gives that, that picture for me has been one of my favorites. It gives an idea how uh, really how tight things were for her back in those days. He graduated as as Milo High School class as a president, and he made a couple stabs at college. But uh, like me and like my dad, it just seems to be thing with us. It didn't work out for him. But he bought a Rio chain drive two-yard dump truck, and it had a manual hoist in it, meaning you had to have a driver and a rider so that when you backed up to where you wanted to dump, the body was positioned so it was almost equally balanced on a hinge, and they had to lift the front end of the body to dump it and then push it back down, lock it back in place. Uh, His dad helped set up a, a hydraulic hoist for him on that truck. And he was telling me one time with a hydraulic hoist and a two-yard body, I was in a class by myself. In 1927, Herb left college and worked in Holden for a while, uh, hauling with his trucks. And uh, his, his wife, Amber, uh, worked at the Lucerne Inn as a waitress or a housekeeper, I'm not sure which. By 1929, he owned a couple newer trucks and bought a third, what he called a junker. That junker and its inability to stay running all the time really impressed on Herb the importance of having equipment that uh, you could trust. And that stayed with him for the rest of his life. In 1930, he bought a uh, reconditioned, a rebuilt, factory rebuilt Thu, T-H-E-W, double-aught power shovel with a gasoline engine in it. And if he thought he was in a class by himself when he had a two-yard truck with a hoist, he really had moved along by now. By the 30s, the Great Depression had set in, but a lot of the work that was uh, brought to bear was by the government, and a lot, there was a lot of development. What had been 
primarily uh, freight trains, bringing freight around, had now moved to, to trucks a lot. And, uh, of course, automobiles were around. And people were getting restless and wanted to get around, get out and around. Um, so the road building started. And eventually the airport work started. So in the early 30s, he did jobs piecemeal all over the state. He was in Blue Hill, Dixfield, up in Aroostook County. He worked in the woods in the wintertime. And by 37, he got his first state highway contract up in Monticello. And that project was, was a relocation of Route 1. Uh, and he had to fill across a pond for half the job, and the other half was to lower a hill. By the 1940s, World War II had gotten underway, and uh, there was a big war effort that ramped up. And uh, he made many trips to Boston. He drove to Boston. If you can imagine, it's, it's not a fun trip now with interstates and, and turnpikes. Uh, he had to drive to Boston mostly through Route 1 Coastal. There they had a board where they posted in paper the jobs that were coming out to bid. There was no internet, obviously, during those days, but it just it just shows how much effort it took back then to uh, to keep working and, and to keep abreast of things. Because the war was going on, help was really scarce because most people were most of the able-bodied men were off fighting in World War II. He was forced to hire help from from prisons uh, or jails at, at the time. Apparently, they, could, they would let him out to go to work, as they sometimes do now. Uh, also, in the early 40s, this first airport job came up. It was a, a new airport in Norwalk, Maine. In the 1950s, he crushed all the rock for Loring Air Force Base, the runway, the roadways. He worked for Ellis, Ellis Snodgrass and built the Indian Pond Dam up near the Forks. And later in the year, he bought a new boat for his camp. First boat he had ever ever got, first new boat he'd ever gotten. It's a 16-foot century resorter uh, that I still own. And that was first camp at Coldstream Pond. In the early 1960s, he had his first open house for his new shop in Stillwater, Maine. And through the 60s and 70s, the interstate work came, along with more airport work. He had several large competitors. Of those, there were five. They called them the big five. One was Hinman, one was Bridge, Rossi, and Desenzo, and then Sargent. And uh, H.E. Sargent was a smaller of those five competitors. In about the mid-70s, Herb handed the reins of the company over to, to his son, Jim, my dad, and to Ralph Leonard, his, his uh, son-in-law. In 1980, Herb's wife, Amber, passed away at 74. And then in 1982, he married Vera Lee, a woman from the next street over in Stillwater. In 1986, he visited me on that project in Monticello. It was the same piece of work that he had done 50 years earlier. In 1988, H.E. Sargent sold to Rizal, but he always kept his office. And he always had an interest in the company all through... He, even though he had no, no ownership uh, in the finances of the company, he always felt like he had great ownership in the people of the company. 
1992, I left HE Sergeant, and I started Sergeant and Sergeant with my brother Shane. And I remember one day uh, we tried out a screening plant, a power screen screening plant, and he came to visit me on the job, and he offered to buy that power screen. It was, I think, an $85,000 purchase, and I'd only been in business for three months, and I was careful about what I spent my money on. But he insisted that he buy it and that I pay him back, quote-unquote, when I can. And he went on to say, you know, if I'd had something like that when I was your age, I might have turned into something. And that was just Herb's dry way of expressing his humility. In 2000, Kevin Gordon, Herb, and I went to uh, Peoria, Illinois, with uh, Caterpillar salesman Alan Vigue to visit the Caterpillar factory. And there we were greeted by a by an attractive young woman who gave Herb a big hug. And she said, Mr. Sergeant, the uh, factory is about 100 acres under one roof. Uh, would you like us to get a golf cart? And again, in Herb's really dry way, he said, oh, I don't know. These young fellows might want one, but I'm all set. He continued that activity through his life, walking miles right up until almost the day he passed away. Also in 2000, Herb's second wife, Vera, passed away. And that hurt him tremendously. But he kept on. In 2002, Herb went with a group of us to Con Expo out in Las Vegas. He was 96 years old now. 90 years almost from the first wagon loads of sawdust that he sold in town. And this 15 minutes I'm spending to talk about this does nothing in the way of, of showing the kind of reverence over those 90 years that I, I feel like should. But at 96 years old, he was featured on the cover of the Con Expo magazine, having never missed a show since the Great Depression. So for 60 years or so, he went to every single Con Expo show. And in the early days, they were in Chicago and they drove to those shows. Being there with him on those, on, those, uh, on those days was priceless. He could walk and walk and walk, and I would be just dying for a beer. And he kept wanting to walk and walk. And finally, you know, about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he'd be ready for a nap. <clears throat> and that would be a good chance to take a break, but he only took a 20-minute nap. So we were back at it again, walking. By the time I left Las Vegas, Herb had worn me out completely. I was 40-something years old at the time. In February 2006... His family got together and friends and celebrated his 100th birthday in Daytona Beach. He had five children, and each of those children had between four and six children. So he had a lot of grandchildren, a lot of grandchildren-in-law, a lot of great-grandchildren. And it was a, it was a, a party 
for me that I'll never forget. And we, we thought that we were doing him a huge favor by having this party. We thought it was a big gift to him. But what I've learned after the fact, as I look back on it, uh, is that wasn't our gift to him. That was his gift to us. He was going to make it past his 100th birthday for us. In early April 2006, we had a wind power project up in Mars Hill. And uh, we made a purchase for that project of a Caterpillar D10 dozer, uh, second biggest cat makes. And we drove it by Herb's house and we wheeled him out in a wheelchair. He was, uh, his health was failing at this point in time. And we wheeled him out in a wheelchair so he could see the machine. Machines always intrigued him, but nowhere near as much as the people that ran them. He was always eager to see what a machine could do when uh, mastered with the right person, matched up with the right person to master it. It was April 7th, 2006. I stopped in to see him after I visited Mars Hill to see the machine working. And he was laying in his, in his room, in his uh, living room, on a bed where he had asked his, his kids to set him up so he could see the trucks come and go. And he was laying down, his eyes were closed, and I told him that I'd just been uh, Told him I'd just been up to see the D10 work. And his eyes never opened, but he muttered out the question, were you satisfied with its productivity? And I'm told those are the last words he ever spoke. As I tried to figure out what I was going to say for this podcast, I thought it would be wrong not to try to sort out the words that I think described him. He was generous. He was genuine. He was loving. He was direct. He was humble. And he was faithful. But I think the word that I'd use to describe him the most is resilient. Because the part that I glossed over in the story is that my grandmother Amber contracted Parkinson's disease when she was about 35. And for many years, she was wheelchair-bound except for one thing, she didn't have a wheelchair. Herb wouldn't get one. For the first 20 years or so, he put her over his shoulder, put her shoulder over his, and he walked her out to the car or from room to room or up the stairs. He drove with her to Daytona, to Ohio, to visit his kids. And for the last 15 years or so, he carried her. He 
scared her from the house to the car. So when I say resilient, that's just one measure of, of his resilience. To be able to manage business in the face of that much need at home and to uh, be able to treat people the way he did, be able to treat his community the way he did. So I want to use that word resilience and I think it's a good time, the way things are right now, for us to talk about it and ask all our people to be resilient. And you might say, well, okay, I'll be resilient. But what does it mean? I know what resilient me resilience means, but what are the actions? What are the things I need to do to be resilient? And the first one, these are my thoughts on it, are to be prepared. The second one is to be calm. The third is to understand what you can control. Separate situations into three categories. Those you cannot control, those that have some impact on you and that you have some response to, and those that you are in fully control over. And I think you need to spend 80% of your time focusing on the ones that you have all control over. And that's basically your behaviors, your decisions, your approaches, your mindset. And another 20% on the things that you have some control over. And the things you have no control over, you just have to not worry about those. You have to strategize with what you can control, the how, the when, the where, but mostly the why. I think you need to answer the, the why question when you strategize first. And then you need to execute. And I look back over this, uh, you know, this 100-year life that I just described in 20 minutes, and I, I think he's... Uh, set a pretty good example of how we can continue to go forward. Herb survived the Spanish flu in 1918. He contracted the Spanish flu. He got started up just before the Great Depression came along. He survived World War II and the lack of help that was available then. In fact, thrived in the following decades. When his wife was ill, he never stopped smiling. When she passed away, it was the start of a new life for him. And when his second wife, Vera, passed away, I think it hurt him greatly, but you would never know it by looking at his face. So that's the kind of example that, that I had. And I know there are very few employees of our company that, that ever knew him, ever met him. You might have seen a picture of him in a newsletter. So today's podcast was just to try to, in some way, introduce you to him. Because I think he's looking down on us. Today, April 9th, 
2020, 14 years after he passed away. And he's marveling at what this company is still doing. Decades after the rest of the top five are no longer spoken about. And now uh, I'd like to get to my favorite part of the podcast is the shout outs. And uh, I mean, I know everybody's out there working their tails off. I have one. I, I was in Portland on Preble Street the other day. And I got the crew circled up and I, I just wanted to thank them for, for working. Because I, I really truly believe we do need to work. And I want to give a shout out to Jay Wilson who immediately said, I'm just thankful to be working. So thank you, Jay, for that. That's that's leadership. I appreciate that. Other leadership we have out there is we have a New Hampshire Safety Committee, Terry Ty, Madeline Harvey, Andrew Pigsley, Stuart McDaniels, and Tyler Green. Working hard for the safety of the folks in New Hampshire. Last week or the week before, we put together a supply team so we could get sanitation supplies out to the jobs. And these folks have done a great job rounding up supplies to the point now where we have a, a pretty good surplus, at least for now. Quentin Frigon, Vicki Patchell, Andrew Pigsley, Tim Colomb, and Brad Gordon. And then out of our Mid-Atlantic office, I want to give a shout-out to Nick Roswog. Nick's been a foreman with us for several years, and we just uh, promoted him to a project manager position down there, and we look forward to, to Nick's great work to continue there as well. So it wouldn't be a podcast, it wouldn't be a communication from me if I didn't mention zero accidents. And we've had two OSHA recordables thus far this year. But I was so impressed with our people as I visited three jobs on Tuesday and the attention to detail. I, I just want to shout out to the whole crew, everybody in the shop, everybody in the office that's not in the office. I want to give a shout out to the whole company. Really great work. I think we still, uh, despite everything, can have a really great year. And I look forward to it. And I hope we end it with zero accidents from here on out. Thank you all.